Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Lupus Films Joint MD Camilla Deacon, Trioscope Studios Chief Executive Elsie Crowley, and Submarine co-founder Femke Volting about how adult animation has evolved to be an increasingly popular medium for sophisticated storytelling, pushing boundaries and powering on through the pandemic. Bosses at international animation studios say they're seeing a boom in drama and documentary projects aimed at adults, primarily driven by demand from streamers. The pandemic hasn't affected the industry in quite the same way as others, with the craft able to continue remotely and in some cases offering innovative solutions to live-action series struggling to complete production. Camilla Deacon, producer and joint managing director of UK-based Lupus Films, Elsie Crowley, chief executive of LA-based Trioscope Studios, and Femke Volting, co-founder of Amsterdam headquartered Submarine, spoke to Nico Franks about these developments and how their own work is pushing boundaries in the field. Today, we're talking about adult animation, one of my favorite topics, and we've got a great panel to discuss that subject uh, in an area where it really is booming at the moment and could be set to boom even further. So Camilla, let's begin with you. Hello, I'm Camilla Deacon. I'm the co-founder and joint owner of Lupus Films. We've been in business for nearly 20 years and we specialise in adapting uh, works of literature, children's books and books for adults and graphic novels as animated films. Elsie, go ahead. Hello, I'm Elsie Crowley. I am the president President and CEO of Trioscope Studios. We're a, a fairly new studio that is built on a proprietary technology that we've developed called Trioscope Enhanced Hybrid Animation. Our focus is definitely on adult animation, particularly animated drama, using our technology engine. Our first series on Netflix, it's called The Liberator, and we're very excited about it. Femke, go ahead. Hi, my name is Femke Volting. I'm co-founder and managing director of Submarine. We're a production company. We celebrate our 20-year anniversary this year. We're based in Amsterdam and Los Angeles. We produce animation, TV, drama and non-fiction, often in combinations. We're currently in production of season two of Undone, uh, a hybrid animation series for Amazon. And we're also in production of a feature film by Richard Linklater for Netflix that's also um, animated and rotoscoped. Fantastic. Yeah. So each company doing very, very interesting things in this area. And when we talk about adult animation, we're not necessarily talking about things that are explicit uh, or not safe for work. Although with a lot of shows aimed at this audience, you wouldn't necessarily want to have them on in your office. And it is such an interesting time for not only animation, but animation aimed at adults at the moment because of the pandemic and the ways in which animation production companies have been able to continue pretty much without a hitch during the pandemic, although I'm sure it's not been without its challenges. So I think a good place to begin will be if the panelists can just take me through how you've coped over the past few months and whether or not, in fact, you've actually been busier than expected. Yeah, well, we've um, we've seen definitely seen an upsurge in interest in our projects, uh, particularly from the streamers, because, you know, they've likewise had an uplift in subscriptions and, and revenue. We've always worked on adult animation alongside uh, our children's projects. 
Uh, and I think it is opening up. It is opening up. I think that one of the things we've noticed has been there's been a lot of interest in animation for documentary features and documentary series, because I think it's a really useful way to either tackle difficult subject matter or historical subject matter where there's no archive footage, for example. So that's quite common. I think the other interesting thing is obviously the growth in the adaptation of graphic novels. We've already adapted a graphic novel called Ethel and Ernest as a feature film. And that was a film that we made in 2016. Uh, Well, we made it over a number of years, but we, we completed it in 2016. And that had a really fantastic response. And uh, since then, we've we've also been looking at a couple of other graphic novel projects to adapt. I think the challenging thing is looking at graphic novels where they have broader themes and then, you know, moving moving animation out of the realms of superheroes, if you like, into other interesting areas and topics. And I think that's something we're, we're particularly interested in. I think looking at historical figures, you know, biographies, for example, is a very interesting area. So, yeah, I would say that it's been good for our business and we've been able to continue production remotely with our animators and storyboard artists and art directors and so on all working from home. LC, has that been the case with you over in the States? Yeah, I mean, literally everything Camilla said, I think is certainly we're experiencing the same thing. One interesting thing that has happened uh, is a lot of sort of big established franchises, particularly here in the United States, established television franchises who found themselves with uh, a partially completed season or, you know, a partially completed episode or, or just aspirations to kind of keep moving when they couldn't in live action have reached out pretty high profile shows and said, hey, could we do three episodes, like a three episode special animated taking our characters and we would write to that opportunity. And uh, a lot of times, at least our experience has been live action producers don't um, understand quite how long our process and the animation process in general takes. And so there's a little bit of a letdown of like, oh, you you need two years? Like we have six weeks, (laughs) you know, it's that kind of thing. But certainly our just our basic development slate has grown probably in the excess of 30% on exactly what Camilla said, streamers who are looking at really starting to open up to new opportunities uh, for adult animation. And Femke, how have things been over with you in Amsterdam and LA? Well, the last six months have been kind of a roller coaster with um, productions first being stalled and continuing. But we've been managing, like we've been... The Richard Linklater film, we finished shooting, I think, on March 9th, so three days before the lockdown. His first shot live action and then animated over the video Im- video image. And the backgrounds are fully animated. So then we, we've we been able to continue production, indeed moving large parts of the teams remote, and then selling on kind of a hybrid model where people come into the studio like maybe once a week. And then when things went not so great in the Netherlands anymore, to fully remote again. And I think what Elsie and Camilla are saying refining as well that there's a interest for our other uh, adult animated productions and also getting a lot of questions about people are have series in development or trying to rethink it as an animate can it be an animated property can it can you make it in a different kind of way or can you make it in a hybrid format or indeed like can you have one episode in an animated format and we are also seeing a lot of interest for animated documentaries as well how do you think this shift towards remote working will affect your businesses in the long term is it something you can see yourself continuing, you know, when hopefully sooner rather than later it is safe to get lots of people in an office again? Do you think actually remote working will kind of become the the uh, the norm for the animation industry? I think there'll be a blended approach because I think some people, animators in particular, do quite like working from home. But at the same time, I think there's a sort of creative benefit to having a team together in a studio, having direct access to the director, for example, 
you know, getting creative feedback on your shots very quickly rather than having to send an email and wait for an email to come back. People get a bit tired of Zoom calls, I think, as well after a while. So you can't beat a bit of personal face-to-face interaction. But I, I don't know that we'd go back to having large studios full of people, you know, Monday to Friday in the same way, because I think people quite like the flexibility of working from home. I think the big question for studios and companies like mine is, you know, do you keep your large studio space and carry on paying all that rent or do you let it go and save yourself a load of money but then you know you're slightly less flexible in in crewing up for big projects and having everyone together so I I would say that's not a question we've we've been able to answer yet we're kind of holding on to our studio at the moment see how things go but I know some people have let theirs go yeah we're finding the exact same thing you know at the beginning of the pandemic once we got all of our remote systems up and running and everything was cool there was this moment that we had where we were like wow this is our new future like why would we ever go back but as time has gone on i think camilla you know we've experienced the same thing i think there's a certain amount of i don't know what you call it you know just human interaction that um that feels like it's missing but i would definitely second your your note about rent you know we have offices in los angeles atlanta and and in poland and um it is not fun to pay a rent bill on, you know, on three buildings that we never show up to for the last, you know, nine months or whatever it's been. Yeah, it's hard to say what the long-term effects will be, right? It's just a combination of good and bad. In the beginning, we were also like, hey, it's fine. We can do the remote working. And I think it has certain, it has brought certain great things. Like it's easier now or people are getting used to working with people all over the world even more. So the, re- the reach for talent is great and, uh, and the flexibility to work with talent from different countries. Certain people love working from home, but a lot of people also miss the collaboration and the communication just takes a lot more time. It takes more production management to to keep the whole process going. And I think long-term collaboration and communication will have to be rethought. And I think in the end, a hybrid model, I think, is something I can see survive. I don't think it will go back to that everybody comes to the office five days a week. I think people like that flexibility. And I also love the fact that we have a bigger reach for talent all over the world. But I think people also in a lot, like now after eight months, you also see people get tired of the Zooms. They miss their colleagues. Like also young people, you know, or maybe especially young people. They miss like getting trained for more see and coaching from the more senior animators, things that are just we need to rethink all these things online. And um, yeah, it's also nice to 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 be together in office sometimes. So obviously this is all happening against the backdrop of the animation and the TV industry in general, recognizing that they need to do more to bring in more diverse animators, writers, voice voice actors on every side of the business on and off screen. So will that become trickier potentially? without that element of physicality? And what are you, uh, your each individual companies doing to address the lack of diversity in the industry? Yeah, I think it is tricky. I think it's tricky for anyone starting a new a new job who doesn't know the team already, you know, because if you're reaching out to trusted individuals who you've worked with before, you know they can work from home and you can catch up with them now and again and it's fine. But it's much harder to make an impression as a young animator or someone might be more experienced but hasn't worked with you before and you haven't got the kind of relationships already established. So that does make it harder. I think it's definitely a priority of 
Bloopers films is to increase access to as, as diverse a range of talent as we can in, in all areas of filmmaking. Um, we do do some work with various organisations in the UK. We've got creative access that we've worked with a lot before to help us recruit animators and production management crew from, from diverse backgrounds. Um, we're always looking for projects where we can um, promote or um, help the career path of people who work for us, whether it's female directors or animators from diverse backgrounds. I know we've got a we've got a production on at the moment and the BFI have got a great scheme called Step Up, which also helps you to um, nominate someone on your crew and promote them into a role with some mentoring and assistance so that they get a chance to, to, to move, move up through their career um, perhaps quicker than they might otherwise. And of course, with casting, that's it's it's we're very keen on, on diverse casting and always looking for opportunities. But I do think you, you did put your finger on it there, Nico, because I think it is much much harder when you're not all in the room together to spot sometimes you spot those individuals and you think oh they're really good I'd like to give them a chance and it's much harder to do that when everyone's working remotely so I think we've just got to be really really alert to it and make sure that we also spend time not just handing out scenes and checking people's you know how many seconds a week they've done but also try and have time to talk to people in a more more general way about what they're looking for from their careers or or or, or just trying to socialize online I mean we have quite a lot of times when we've just said everyone grab a drink and Friday afternoon let's just get on a Zoom and have a chat or whatever so yeah I mean it's difficult but I think we've got to keep striving yeah and you know what I would add to that too is that we we've sort of just sort of made it our mission to use this moment where we're seeing you know all of the big streamers all the buyers that we're talking to really put a meaningful emphasis on diversity for just as you said Nico the you know both in front of the camera and behind and so even the projects that we're developing it's a passion of ours to to go down that road anyway but it's we're seeing a, a, a much greater openness and I think for us anyway there's a bit of convergence and enthusiasm about our technology and about what we're doing in general so we're leveraging that to bring projects to fruition that might not have otherwise, or in, in many cases, were set up live action or, or struggled to be set up as live action because they were, you know, had a point of view that might not have previously been uh, thought of as mainstream enough to merit the kind of investment that it takes to make it. So we feel very fortunate. And then from there, you know, within those individual communities, you know, the, the story stories are about, we're, we're putting a big emphasis on building the team for that in that particular project from that community. So in the case of a couple of projects that we have that are focused on the Native American community, we're looking at everything from top to bottom, obviously cast, but also, you know, writers, showrunners, directors, and as many people in post and, you know, animators as, as we can find. And it's probably something that just because we're already in as an organization, the mindset of, you know, being more distributed because of the pandemic that is, is perhaps made a bit easier, um, at least for us anyway. Yeah, I think for us, it's also the case. I think people are looking for more diverse stories and also more because of the immediate nature of the internet, people are also more used to to viewing stories from all over the world and from different cultures and different 
different visual styles and techniques. So we also make an effort, like for example, we're now we're, we're developing an animated feature documentary taking place in Baghdad. And so it's very important to us to work also with designers, animators from that region and yeah, and build an inclusive team like that. And I would say like at this time, since every most of the world is working remote anyhow, maybe that's even easier to uh, or more natural to do at this time. And uh, who's the project you're working on with for the Baghdad documentary? It's about a zoo. It's called Baghdad Zoo and it's about a zoo in Baghdad in uh, during the war and how the animals were saved by a combination of the soldiers from both sides. And it's a hybrid documentary. Yeah, and it's an, and it's an excellent project to really have to create a world from uh, from that moment in time with people from that, from that region. And obviously Undone on Amazon has a really, really distinctive look as well. So tell me a, a bit about that. So Undone is indeed a hybrid series. So we shoot the, the actors in a, in a studio setting. Uh, during COVID time, we were, were able to continue doing that in a small uh, smaller setting. And the backgrounds are oil paintings that are animated and brought to life. Um, so the world is fully animated and the actors are real actors. So you have the intimacy and the expressiveness of the real actors. And those are then rotoscoped, so traced and, and animated. So the result is, uh, is a hybrid animation series that kind of combines the, the real actors animated in this animated world. And we're currently in season two. How are your companies marrying the, the business model traditionally of creating an animated series and sometimes a feature of kind of co-producing, putting together a, a financial jigsaw puzzle from multiple territories, which is obviously takes a lot of work and is time consuming. On the upside with the streamer, obviously you don't need to do that, but you don't get the potential to sell territory by territory, which can be really, really lucrative, obviously, with animation. How are you marrying that? I, I, I'll, um, I'll say that we're we're doing both. And we're also sort of leaving options open on both sides, right? Like as we develop international co-productions, we're, we're sort of saying like, well, if a streamer wanted it bad enough, you know, perhaps it would be worth be worth it. Uh, but certainly putting those pieces in place has, has merit as it always has. I would say right now, our mix of sort of in, traditional international co-pros versus things that are destined for, you know, outright purchase from streamers is probably 70% weighted to streamers and 30% to international national co-production. Yeah, because there does seem to be a kind of level of prestige that comes with doing a project with an Amazon or a Netflix, which kind of is a almost a marketing upside compared to selling to a broadcaster. Yeah, I think that's true. And for us, you know, as a new company who's sort of debuting a, a sort of a, a new storytelling experience, as we like to say, uh, faster to market is, you know, ha has meaningful value in a way that it might not if we were set up a different way with a different model. How about you, Camilla? Because obviously a lot of the specials that you've produced in the past kind of adaptations of children's books and classic stories have been with Channel 4 in the UK? Yeah, I think the model's probably slightly different for adult animation. I think the thing about children's animation is traditionally that, you know, you would be prepared to invest more up front to retain your back-end rights because there may be um, merchandising and so forth, which may not be the case with an adult project. And therefore, probably with an adult project, if a streamer wants to get involved early on and fully finance, uh, that's quite an attractive proposition really because as 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 we all know as producers you spend a lot of time unpaid raising finance for projects uh, and that time never really ever seems to get reflected in the budget so i think we we're a bit a bit like lc we've got um a mixture of the two types of project i think the streamers definitely seem to have stepped up and you know there's a point where you say OK, 
okay, they want to control it or they want to own everything, you know, but on the other hand, you know, we get to go into production quickly and 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 we're fully financed and we don't have to worry about that. So so it's definitely, I think each project is, is slightly different. You just have to weigh up the pros and cons of each approach. I think it would be a shame if everything, you know, was fully financed by the streamers and nobody kept any rights in anything anymore. Because essentially we'd all become, you know, well-paid um, work for hire studios as opposed to properly independent producers. I think the difficulty with feature films at the moment is nobody quite knows what's going to happen with the cinema market, with the theatrical market. So we're, while we're in limbo, we're very happily, happily taking the streamers' dollars, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, I think we also do a combination. A couple of years ago, the majority was co-productions. That was kind of traditionally what we would do, um, especially in the kids' animation space. And the bigger adult animation projects that we're now doing are always streamers. I do think adult animation is until now more commissioned by the streamers because of the higher budgets and perhaps also because they're more daring uh, were more daring to uh, to commission. But I completely agree with Camilla it's important to do both and not be completely dependent on one one kind of commissioner and each model has its, has, has its good and bad sides. So we we, uh, we enjoy doing both. And it's interesting looking at the states and the because obviously adult animation shows like The Simpsons, South Park, there's real proven hits, which I think has kind of driven those traditional broadcasters to continue funding adult animation, like Fox is a big supporter of it, companies like that, which is something that never really happened in Europe. It tends to be a lot more art housey kind of adult animation. How are you seeing the US traditional broadcasters react to Netflix's immense, you know, spending in this area, uh, LC? Are you seeing a demand from those broadcasters, especially now also that they're launching their own streaming services? Yeah, I mean, if anything, we're seeing a, a significantly increased intrigue. I won't say that they are pulling the trigger quite yet, at least in our experience. I think they are all looking at the streamers who are sort of taking the, the pioneering bets and <laughs> seeing if those pay off. Uh, over the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months. And then I, I feel like you mentioned Fox. I mean, they're a good example, you know. I mean, certainly the, the word on the street is that they are very much interested in expanding their horizons in animation into into more adult dramatic material, but I haven't necessarily seen them go for it yet. There's probably things that aren't announced. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, we're, and I would also add, you know, the feeder system to the big to the big broadcasters, the, the big American studios are all sort of gobbling up great projects. We're in business with several and treating, you know, our, our and I'm, I'm guessing that everyone here has a certain amount of this, but we're just developing projects like premium drama. We're making a big effort to try to take down that wall of animation being a niche, you know, and just both by how we're talking about the projects, but the projects that we're curating on our slate as well. And we're definitely seeing an openness at the big studios and broadcasters alike to at least consider that yet. I think it's still early. Femke, how are you seeing it? Because obviously you've got a presence in both markets. The traditional broadcasters react to how well received a lot of adult animation is being viewed on their, on streaming services and pushing more into it. In a, I guess a similar way that we've seen young adult be a big hit for companies like Netflix and that's led to the broadcasters kind of realizing oh we, we were sleeping on this audience for quite a while could a similar thing happen with adult animation I think so we got a lot of interest also from European broadcasters and and indeed also American non-streamers and I think it's also because audiences are becoming 
much more used to watching animation, not just in cartoons, but in different forms of drama. I mean, if you look at the top 10 box office movies, they're mostly films that largely exist out of animation. And so especially younger audiences, I don't think they make that distinguishment as much as maybe older audiences. So I do think it's a growing market also outside of the streamers. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think, I mean, interestingly, when we made our film, Ethel and Ernest, uh, it was actually commissioned by BBC Drama. And it was, um, I believe it was the first animated film they put in a primetime drama slot on BBC One, which is the main terrestrial broadcaster in the UK. So that was quite a coup to get that slot and to get the backing of the drama department in that way. And we had a fantastic response from the British public when they watched it. A lot of them were, a lot of the comments on social media because at one point we were sort of trending at number one on Twitter and a lot of the comments were from people saying I didn't think I liked animation but then I started watching this film and it really drew me in and I just got so engaged with the characters and the emotion and it's it's back to that old thing that a lot of you know that animation is a technique it's not a genre and you can tell any story in animation and you can have very powerful emotions and strong characters and you know animation can be almost anything it wants to be so the problem problem has always not been the people producing it who are very creative and have lots of great ideas of how best to use it to enhance their storytelling. It's it's often that the, the commissioners kind of lag behind a bit and are worried perhaps that the audiences won't accept it. But I think that's starting to change now. Probably the reason that there's not that much adult animation on, on the terrestrial broadcasters in the UK is cost. I just think they're nervous of putting that much money into things that take that long to produce that they won't know whether it's going to be a success or not for two or three years and by then something you know things might have changed and whereas the streamers are much have, you know they've obviously got a lot more money to play with so they can take more risks but I think you know there are probably some opportunities to still possibly do co-productions or carve out certain territories not as much as before but certainly we wouldn't want to rule out any of the UK terrestrials from pitching adult animation. Camilla so Lupus has a great reputation for among other things amazing a hand-drawn style of animation is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I would say that our style of animation is the polar opposite of what LC and Femke are doing because we don't rotoscope anything. And all of our characters are hand-drawn by top animators who've been, you know, crafting their skills over many years and decades. So Ethel and Ernest are Raymond Briggs's parents. Raymond Briggs is, is probably the leading uh, children's book author and illustrator in the UK and has won many awards for his work. And his his, his graphic novel, Ethel and Ernest, was a story about a very ordinary couple living through extraordinary times where um, his parents who met in the 1920s and died in the 1970s he was reflecting on what enormous changes they'd witnessed you know from the Great Depression to the Second World War through to man landing on the moon and you know the swinging 60s and what a strange time it was for those two people who were born at the end of the Victorian era and ended up in our modern era you know with space flight and aeroplanes and so on and and it's on one hand a very intimate film because it's about a couple who fall in love and get married and have a child and we follow them throughout their lives. And on the other hand, it's it's epic, you know, because it looks at all the big, big moments in, in the 20th century. And all our animation was hand-drawn and obviously based very closely on Raymond Briggs's original illustrations from his graphic novel. So we, you know, a lot of our animators,
doctors study life drawing and, you know, they have to be very good at drawing anatomically correct characters where, you know, as the face turns, the volumes are correct for the cheekbones and the noses and so on. But actually the real skill of an animator is, is the acting because they're bringing to life that character just with the use of their pencil or their pen they use on their Cintiq. And that's a real skill and a real art in itself, but also to keep those characters all the time on model so they look like the original book illustrations is a real a real challenge and a, and a, and a real art in itself so so we were really proud with the with the end, proud of the end result and uh, we were very happy with the, the way it was received and we're doing another fully hand-drawn animated feature at the moment Penske's Kingdom also based on a book by Michael Morpurgo and we've had a number of Christmas specials also based on on children's books so again drawn from the illustrations but in 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 pretty much all of our films we've got human characters but not rotoscoped obviously it feels like there's this real shift towards kind of a hybrid style of not only working but also on screen what the shows look like so you um trioscope that's a hybrid model and it, you're doing something really different aren't you Elsie? so tell me a bit about what is different about the way the kind of animation that you're producing yeah absolutely certainly the work that Fim and her team are doing is uh, has been inspirational for us uh in link letters movies that are obviously have laid the groundwork you know I, I think it, it for us started with a sort of a notion if you want to sort of infuse more humanity into animation perhaps the solution is to just put humans in it. And so we've put a, you know, all of our emphasis is on maintaining as much of the organic, authentic performance that we capture uh, as possible. So a lot of the stuff that ultimately ends up in the in the finished product, we're capturing in camera. So we have a bunch of sort of proprietary tools that we've developed and really, they're just out of the need for, you know, tweaking certain elements. But in order to do that, they didn't exist. So we had to sort of like come up with a, a smart makeup system and all these different etching techniques. And and we didn't think we were going to have to sort of reinvent the wheel. But in the end, you know, we did in a lot of ways. Um, but also, I'll say that, the, you know, the digital tools are just much more accessible and, and much more advanced than they were even 10 years ago. So we, we've seen those opportunities and tried to take advantage of those as much as possible. Our pipeline is a hybrid of both, you know, proprietary things that we've developed specifically for our post and other things that we've just sort of, you know, highly refined that, that are already in place and other people are using in the same way. But what we feel is that the combination of all the things we're doing in camera, all the things we're doing in post creates, you know, a new result. And it's the, you know, it's the thing a lot of people talk about, you know, the moving graphic novel, that's sort of our North Star is to try to be as authentic to that as possible, but still give creators the latitude to vary the style as much as they would like within that. And as an example of that, you know, our first big series, The Liberator, which is on Netflix, really, you know, it's a story that is at its heart about inclusivity. And it's about a group of soldiers that the U.S. government really didn't think would fight on behalf of you know, the U.S., but came over big group of Native American and Latinx soldiers and sort of saved the world. And what we're, you know, tremendously proud of and, and, and excited for is that it's a story that involves all kinds of sort of the darkest elements of humanity, including things like, you know, concentration camps. And so how do you how do you represent those things in animation? And, you know, we feel very fortunate that we've been able to kind of take on that big challenge. It's a big risk, but a, I think a worthy one. And hopefully people, you know, like what they see, the audiences that have t that it has tested with have sort of seen our technology for about 
about the first two minutes of watching it. And then they almost unanimously report that they, to Camilla's earlier point, they dive right into the story and forget they're even watching any, you know, any kind of stylized animation look at all. And obviously with a series, it has the potential to be very, very long running. And as we've seen, you know, The Simpsons is the longest running TV show ever. Do you think we're getting closer to a European equivalent of The Simpsons now with this extra interest in adult animation? Or are European producers not really developing that kind of show because the Americans are just simply too good at it and they've been doing it for so long that it's kind of impossible to compete? I think there's a different sensibility in Europe, but I don't I don't think it's impossible to compete. I mean, if you look at The Amazing World of Gumball, for example, that's a European series and that's been incredibly successful in the US and internationally. And that that, you know, comes from a, a creative team based in London. I think that one of the things we don't do in this quite the same way is the sort of big team writing approach to making shows. You know, we tend to have individual creators or smaller teams of writers coming up with shows, which sometimes makes them make them makes them a bit more idiosyncratic but I don't think it's impossible and I definitely think we've seen a, a lot more interest from both the streamers and you know traditional companies like Disney in producing their series either out of the UK or Ireland or France you know where there are a lot a lot of very talented creators writers and animators yeah I think so too I think the kind of the American dominance in all TV is no longer there and you see all the American studios and networks and streamers, they're being very interested in European series. You see that in the TV market in general, and I think in animation as well. And perhaps they, out of Europe, might not come exactly something like The Simpsons, the way that is produced, like Mila says, but there might come, I think there'll be other series that are that will really resonate with American audiences. Yeah, even if you look at if you look at in regular drama, how European series are doing really, really well in the US, like a series like uh, Normal People, right? That also did really well in, in the US. So I think might not be the same, but I ex- absolutely think that out of Europe can come big global successes in animation. And Elsie, what's your take on that? Because obviously you do have a presence in Europe. You mentioned your Polish studio. You know, I mean, I guess time will tell. I mean, I think what I'm, what I'm really excited about is for, and not just because we make it, but because so many great creators like everybody here and all the others that are doing it. I, I feel like animation having its moment for a big series and maybe on an, on an even a more international scale than Simpsons started out with to be dramatic, you know, a dramatic series to kind of capture the moment, you know, I think is really exciting. We're doing our part. Hopefully, hopefully it's one of ours, but hopefully it's somebody's, you know, and I'm not saying that the world has enough subversive adult animated comedies but there there are a lot <laughs> and they're more and more seemingly every day and and certainly i mean you know to answer your question nico like there there's nothing i see that would preclude a really great comedic animation series coming from anywhere in europe you know or australia or new zealand i mean you know there's just there's so much good good stuff out there uh, it's more about sort of where the market is at this moment it feels like drama is the thing that's likely to kind of be the next zeitgeist moment cool yeah it does feel like it's only a matter of time and in particular yeah the the animated documentary is definitely a a format that we will likely be seeing more and more of in the future yeah it doesn't make any sense to me like every time somebody talks about the tower or they talk about what's with Bashir you know they're they light up you know (laughs) and and uh, and usually these are buyers, you know, and you sort of you see that enthusiasm on the individual level because they love those documentaries. I, I think that is an indicator, you know, a lot more of that is going to happen. Certainly, I, um, I didn't mention it earlier, but we've we've had an awful lot of interest and have a few projects in the doc space for that reason as well. Camilla Deacon, Elsie Crowley and Femke Volting speaking to Nico Franks. 
That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.